Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. Today we're discussing how we can develop insight, vision, and creativity from the darkness of uncertainty, grief, and fear. We will be exploring darkness and how it can help us navigate the uncertainty of our times. I'm joined today by Deborah Eden Tall, who prefers to go by Eden. She is the founder of Mindful Living Revolution. She is a Zen meditation and Dharma teacher, author, spiritual activist, ecologist, and sustainability educator. Eden spent seven years training as a Buddhist monk, and her teachings bridge personal and collective awakening. She is the author of numerous books, including the one being discussed in today, Luminous Darkness, an Engaged Buddhist Approach to Embracing the Unknown. You can find out more about Eden and her programs and books on her website, Deborah Eden Tall. Deborah is with an H, D-E-B-O-R-A-H, EdenTall.com. You can also follow her on Facebook at Deborah Eden Tall and also um, under the tag at Mindful Living Revolution. And she's also on Instagram and YouTube at that same tag, at Mindful Living Revolution. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, Eden. I'm really delighted you could join me today to talk about your book. I'm grateful to be here with you today. So before we dive into our dialogue about, about darkness and embracing darkness and what it can bring us, let's begin with a moment of contemplation of, of present moment awareness, a yoga moment to begin. So let's begin right where we are, whatever we're doing, by just bringing our attention to our bodies in space. Just feeling our bodies, whatever we're doing, whether we're sitting or standing, walking, driving, just feeling our bodies in space. And drawing particular attention to the surfaces that support our weight, feeling the part of our body that's in contact with those surfaces. Where are our feet? What part of our weight is supported in the chair if we're sitting? And let's turn our attention to the breath, a wonderful tool that's always with us. As we just notice on the next inhale and exhale. On the next inhale, feeling the cool air in the nostrils. And on the exhale, feeling how the air has been warmed as it passes through our lungs. And just staying with our breathing, just noticing, not trying to change the natural flow. Here's something to contemplate, a poem from Yogacharya O'Brien the founder and spiritual director of this program, from her book of poetry, The Moon Reminded Me. This poem is entitled, The Moon's Door. I have been knocking on the moon's door for hours. She pretends she is not there, but I see slivers of light through the cracks. Last time she opened the door, I jumped and screamed. She closed it right away. What kind of lover knocks on the door, then screams when you answer? One who has never before seen that much beauty. I have been knocking on the moon's door for hours. 
She pretends she is not there, but I see slivers of light through the cracks. Last time she opened the door, I jumped and screamed. She closed it right away. What kind of lover knocks on the door then screams when you answer? One who has never before seen that much beauty. Oh. Once again, Eden, welcome to the Yoga Hour. I'm really delighted that you can join me today to discuss your book, Luminous Darkness. As we approach the winter solstice, which, as everyone knows, is the shortest day of the year, it seems like a, a wonderful time to be discussing darkness, both the daily darkness that we all experience, as well as the symbolic darkness of the unknown, and how the exploration of that darkness can help us navigate the uncertainty of our times. So let's begin with your book, Why Did You Decide to Write This Book at This Time? Sure. Uh, there were many different uh, streams of wisdom feeding me, I believe, in the inspiration to write this book. And I might start just reminding us all of a quote by Carl Jung. Uh, One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by bringing the darkness into consciousness. And I know that it has been true for my path and my life that it's been in turning towards with compassion everything that I've considered or once deemed or judged dark or uncomfortable, difficult, even simply the darkness of the unknown, uncertainty, and brought it into the embrace of presence of compassion, of clear seeing, that I have over time fallen in love with the dark and mm -hmm. recognized that light and dark work in sacred interplay in our lives, within the natural world, and certainly on the path of awakening. And so at a time, I believe, when there's so much residue of this divide and perceived duality between light and dark and human consciousness tends to has for a long time held light on a pedestal above dark and through that we've pushed away and rejected a lot that makes us uncomfortable that we are not willing to bring into compassionate awareness i believe it's the perfect time for more people to acknowledge wait darkness is our teacher and guide to Darkness carries incredible medicine yeah. personally and for these times. And it's a practice of love um, from the poem you just shared. I was inspired so much when I listened, but just recognizing the beauty in the darkness equal to the beauty of the light. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was struck by the title of your book being Luminous Darkness which I thought was interesting in that usually we think of luminosity as expressing light. So can you say more about how darkness can be luminous? Sure. Um, I think it's fascinating that we tend to think of darkness as the absence of light, and yet we don't define light as the absence of darkness. Even in the Merriam-Webster dictionary, we define okay. darkness this way, the absence of light. Yeah. And I was so struck by that, by the way. I'm really glad that yeah. you mentioned that because it, it, it had never occurred to me before. We do define it that way. We define darkness as the absence of light, but not light as the absence of darkness. That's fascinating. Yes. And through that, we forget to bring curiosity, openness, uh, what we speak of in Zen as beginner's mind, mm -hmm. reverence to the darkness, to actually experience what is through my experience, not my mind's assumptions, mm -hmm. the physical, metaphorical, symbolic darkness. And when we do tune into this, we recognize what so many wisdom traditions across the globe have uh, given labels such as the divine darkness, uh, 
the elemental darkness in nature and consciousness and the luminous darkness is the phrase that I chose for this book because it is a place of such clear seeing, clear perception from the heart beyond the mind's busy labels and habits of categorizing everything in life, instead seeing from the wholeness through which we might perceive, let's say, under the night sky rather than a habit in the daylight or in artificial lights of kind of bringing attention to difference and detail. That's one of the ways we get to luminous darkness. But I'll offer that when we really tune in to what darkness is. Uh, it's a deeply restorative field. Mm -hmm. The yin field within nature, the resting still, the uh, spacious backdrop of awareness that welcomes everything that leaves nothing out, the field of all possibility the field from which everything arises and everything returns. So at the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned creativity and possibility. This all arises from darkness. So yeah. if we're afraid of it or resisting it or trying to fill the space or keep things light, we're missing a whole fertile ground of human experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you just, you know, just mentioned the uh, yin of darkness. And one of the things that I appreciated in your writing, uh, you were describing the symbol for the Tao, which illustrates balance of nature, the balance between darkness and light. And you write, the ancient symbol for the Tao beautifully illustrates the whole of the yin and yang curled around each other, which each with each element containing an eye of the other at its very center. It also captures the complete absence of polarization and duality in life because the two are swirling together and each contains the other. Um, and as you mentioned, that is often not the view of the modern world, which uh, associates darkness with uh, negativity. So would you say more about this uh, symbol and, um, and wholeness? Sure. I really feel that this symbol invites us to question our attachment to binary perception, this versus that, this yeah. or that, and hierarchical perception, yeah. uh, good, bad, right, wrong, light, dark, positive, negative, it can become rather exhausting to have to file and categorize life into all of those uh, tiny bits that don't embrace the full spectrum and the wholeness. And you know, just hearing you repeat that quote, reflecting on just this morning you know my husband and i rose early and came out to watch the um, dawn become daylight and just that wild motion of going from complete darkness to slivers of light especially this morning there was a mind-blowing and mind-bending kind of sunrise to the colors coming in and Another example today for me is um, I shared with you before this session started that my my mom's best friend just went into hospice and so my brother sister and I just sat down together to write her kind of our, our reflections and send our blessings and a final farewell and it's full of grief and loss and at the same time this this deep beauty and love and joy celebrating this woman and her life and the spirit of friendship and all of these things exist together right that grief and love are two sides of the same coin so if we're numbing out to one of them we're numbing out the other and again i want to use the phrase the full spectrum the wholeness of our existence that's what i believe um, awakening invites us to mm -hmm. yeah yeah, welcoming it all and celebrating it all. Right. I was particularly drawn to a statement you made in the introduction to your book, where you write, meditation teaches us to live in a state of openness and deep listening, not only in relation to humanity, but in relationship with the cosmos. By engaging in embodied listening as a way of life, we remember ourselves as part of the interdependent nexus 
of nations, of nature, sorry, intelligence. By engaging in embodied listening as a way of life, we remember ourselves as part of the interdependent nexus of nature's intelligence. I was struck by this idea of embodied listening. Can you say more about embodied listening as a way of life? Yes, uh, this is something I'm deeply passionate about and just want to acknowledge just on a really basic, simple level uh, for listeners to consider. In any moment, we can be shallow listening, just sort of listening or caught in the inner narrative, the stories in our head, and again, this binary perception, this very surface kind of listening, which is really listening to our own bubble of separate self <laughs> and affirming that illusion of separate self. Or we can be dropping in deeper. I talk about in the book, waking down into and through our bodies and our earth connection, learning to listen in an embodied way with every cell of our body, simply by resting in our natural receptivity. Again, receptivity points to the yin of darkness. Mm -hmm. And I think of meditation as a practice of learning to listen to life as it unfolds moment by moment. And we don't leave that state when we get off the cushion mm -hmm. to live in that state. And this is how we remember ourselves in every moment and through ordinary life as not separate, but again, part of the incredible, intelligent nexus of the natural world of Gaia consciousness. So I teach a lot of trainings, including a six month training called the heart of listening. That's just a phenomenal journey of embodied listening, not even as something we do, but something we remember as who we already are. That receptivity, when we meet life from receptivity, we remember that the entire cosmos wants to live in conversation with us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 One of the things you write about is that um, the, the earth has become so much more uh, permeated by light, um, even over the last 50 years. And, and it was interesting because I've reflected on this a lot. Um, I grew up in a town, Stockton, California, a town of about 100,000 when I was growing up there. And um, what was amazing is I would look up at the night sky and I would always see the Milky Way always like it was just visible every single night and people would talk about it and I, to me it was just so matter of fact it's like well of, you know of course it's like right there i now rarely have an opportunity to to see the milky way there's just so much light you know pollution that i have to be someplace very far away you know from that like up in the mountains or something to be able to see that so that is it's it's quite something you write that there's a connection between the overlighting of our planet and the overlighting of human consciousness. Would you say more about that? Yes, I believe there is. And I'll just first give a shout out for an organization called the, the Dark Sky uh, Association that's working to protect the night sky because today over 60% of planet Earth is artificially lit at night, over 90% of the US and Europe. And that's profound given humans existed for 650,000 years before we even had fire. And it's only in recent times that we've had electricity. And now this overlighting phenomenon is happening both through artificial lights, which has a profound impact people might not be aware of on the natural world on animal and plant species on humans uh, specifically our endocrine system but also i ask what is the spiritual significance of not spending time under the night sky and also of having a fixation on these artificially lit environments and the screen and i think it's a big impact <laughs> i lived for many years off the grid um, seven and a half of those years as a monastic at a silent monastery in the wilderness and so much wisdom came to me through time spent in the night time spent just being under the mystery and the field of all possibility and the nightly reminder of my place here and I just feel that uh, it's something we're, we're missing now and that it really 
goes hand in hand with this overlighting of human consciousness and really a fixation on the rational mind, on again, labeling and assessing, standing outside of life as subject object. There's a lot I could say about that, but I think uh, I have a great hope that we redeem the importance of the night sky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that you write about is spiritual bypassing and how the focus on the light encourages this this you know process of spiritual bypassing. So would you just define spiritual bypassing and perhaps talk about how we can avoid it? Sure. Let's think of spiritual bypassing as using our spiritual practices or philosophies to justify pushing away, turning away from that which is difficult, uncomfortable, painful, dark, and to acknowledge that this is not helpful, to acknowledge that anything we turn away from or push away, uh, it doesn't go away. It just goes deeper into a state of isolation and aloneness, and all healing occurs when we bring that forth into compassionate awareness. And so I think it's important for everyone today to be paying attention to the potential for spiritual bypass. I talk in my book, I use the phrase sunshining. I grew up in LA, a culture where even while I was experiencing a very um, multidimensional existence, I experienced grief at a very young age and My parents were engaged in social justice work that uh, had me facing head on the realities and inequities of our world. And yet sunshining was going on in the culture around us. This kind of, if it's uncomfortable, let's not have that conversation. Let's keep things positive in an effortful way, not a natural, uh, organic way. And again, for me, if we're numbing out to to one, (laughs) we're numbing out to the beautiful work at hand and we're numbing out to our deeper resilience, truth, and joy. And I would just like to say that from what I see in our world right now, um, there's a tremendous amount of grief, personally and collectively, ancestral trauma, isms that have been passed down, that's asking us to turn our hearts towards it, to be metabolized through the alchemical power of our bodies together. And if we're bypassing, (laughs) we're not going to get to the deeper work. Mm -hmm. We're going to find ways to say, oh, I don't want to look at my shadow. You know, I think I'm I'm already there. I don't have to look at my shadow. Uh, Meanwhile, there's great medicine and power, shared power, not power over, in embracing and meeting our shadows. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, as someone who meditates, um, it's, it's, um, I, I feel it's been a great blessing for me, the power that meditation has brought me to notice things. And then the yoga practice, one of the three essential practices of Kriya Yoga is self-study. And so seeing when I, you know, for example, snap at somebody, um, you know, when they ask a question that I don't particularly want to, you know, answer I really cultivate um, curiosity, really trying to get curious about that instead of just kind of papering over it and pretending that it, you know, that it didn't happen. So I agree with you that it brings such um, depth to our self-study if we can, if we can really, like I said, if we can cultivate that. And I, I would not claim to always be successful at that. That's my husband would probably attest. But, um, you know, it's my effort, you know, to try and notice when those things happen, because of course, it's, it's easiest to embrace the part of our parts of ourselves that are, you know, the positive, you know, parts of ourselves, and, and harder to see the parts of ourselves that are not that are, you know, ego driven, and, uh, you know, uh, really concerned with what's best for us, Uh, not concerned with what's best for everyone. I could go on and on. Yes. And and just two things I would add to that. Uh, I love that you brought up curiosity because the simple motion of replacing judgment with curiosity is the doorway in. And also 
just to remind people that uh, only our ego would turn away from something. Only the ego would other something and would actually divide and cut into half life. Human experience, nature contains both light and dark. So when we are willing to turn towards and embrace and welcome it all in, not only do we get in touch with our fierce compassion, but we remember who we actually are, the mm. compassionate awareness that is not judging and dividing life. Mm. Otherwise, we're really um, selling ourselves short and using our practice to justify that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I um, you know, I'm just gonna underline the, uh, this idea that you just mentioned about that compassion, because of course, if we're going to be curious, it's so important for us to then accompany that with self-compassion, um, that we extend to ourselves what we would unthinkingly extend to someone else um, who was, dealing with something, you know, we would find no problem at all being kind to them, being compassionate, you know, with them, being understanding with them. And yet in ourselves, it often arises along with judgment. And in my own experience, if you have a lot of self-judgment, it makes it really hard to face those parts of ourselves that that still need work. If we're just going to give yeah. ourselves a, a huge, you know, hard time about the fact that, you know, we're still there. It, it makes it, it actually contributes to spiritual bypassing, right? You know, if we're just going to really be hard on ourselves, of course, we're not going to want to be triggered in curiosity, we're going to want to bypass it's just, you know, bypass it to get rid of it. Absolutely. So it keeps the cycle going. And uh, it keeps us from recognizing another possibility of meeting what is with compassionate awareness, not taking it personally, um, but really being kind and caring with ourselves as we investigate shadow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In your book, you, you relate uh, several personal stories about facing darkness and your experiences in facing darkness. Would you share um, one of those uh, experiences with listeners um, and what it, what it meant to you personally? to sure. be in the darkness. I think the story when you were, your flashlight ran out <laughs> was a good oh, one. Oh, yes. There are so many uh, stories in the book, um, both darkness, physical and symbolic. But in that particular instance, I was probably in the, the first phase of living as a monk. And just to imagine, I was 26 when I let go of my belongings and shave my head and move to the monastery. And it really took courage. And while part of me was courageous, another part of me was really scared and just not knowing what I was stepping into by doing something so outside the box and sort of following this spiritual um, hunger within. And so there we were living in the wilderness. I was in a teeny tiny hermitage about a 15 minute walk away from anyone else. And so at night I would just take my flashlight and go on this walk through the woods to, to get there. And so this field was new to me. And on this particular night, which was during the new moon, so no moonlight whatsoever to light up the sky, uh, my flashlight died and I didn't yet have the wisdom to have extra batteries with me. So there I was just walking through the pitch black forest and first aware of the the fear, sort of strange nocturnal sounds and creatures and just the fear of not being able to see my way, uh, the fear of just that kind of um, dread that we can impose onto darkness. And as I entered kind of a slower mindful walking meditation through the forest, my consciousness began to expand in such a way that meditation allows so that I was no longer walking through the darkness, but with the darkness and more honestly, as the darkness, the, the sense of separation dissolved completely. And there was this clear awareness Number one, oh my gosh, rarely do I spend time actually fully befriending the night, really being with the consciousness of the darkness wholeheartedly. And I just sat down on the forest floor to meditate 
all sense of the I, the small self dissolved completely. And I found myself bathing in a bath of infinity, <laughs> just bathing in uh, the fertile groundlessness of the void, the beauty of it, the benevolence of it. And this is significant because just like we tend to label darkness as the absence of light, we tend to label emptiness as the absence of something. So in a meditation practice, at least coming from Zen, we're inviting people to let go of the familiar shore and to let go of this fixed sense of self, this I, and to empty and to surrender, right? To this fertile emptiness. And at first there can be fear. And when we surrender to it, we recognize, oh my gosh, there was nothing to fear. Yeah. This field, which is always here, is, for lack of better language, the love that I was seeking, but I thought I had to hold on tightly and even use force and effort to try to find it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, uh, that's, that's really beautiful. I was reminded as you were speaking of uh, one of my favorite quotes from the um, Isha Upanishad, which goes, all this is full. All that is full. When fullness comes from fullness, fullness remains. And that's, to me, that experience that you're just describing is you're, you experience the total fullness, that wholeness, that indescribable, you know, place where we can experience that. Absolutely. You've got it. Yeah. And we can't understand it with a conscious mind. That's, right. what's, that's what's tricky about it. <laughs> <laughs> and we can't get there through philosophizing, understanding, yeah. but yeah. really through our direct innate receptivity and softening effort to mm -hmm. surrender to that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. As a reminder to our listeners today on the Yoga Hour, my guest is Deborah Eden Tall, who goes by Eden. Her work has been featured in the Los Angeles Times, the magazine Tricycle, The Shift Network, and The Ecologist. Eden also teaches the work that reconnects, which was created by Joanna Macy. She also, also teaches for UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center. You can find out more about Deborah Eden Tull and her programs on her website by her name, Deborah Eden Tull. It's T-U-L-L is Tull, and Deborah is with an H, DebraEdenTull.com. We'll also publish the link to her um, website on our webpage at theyogahour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us via that website, theyogahour.com, where you can also sign up for our mailing list. Let's see. Um, meditation and deep listening. You write, deep listening is a meditative practice that we can continue to develop for the rest of our lives. Whether you are experienced in meditation or new at it, beginner's mind is the most helpful attitude to bring. Um, you write about inner knowing and how we can access that inner knowing, which I thought was um, very powerful. We often think that um, all of our knowledge and information has to come from outside of us. But as you point out, we have this deep connection and lots of things can just be revealed. So how do you, um, would you say more about meditation and deep listening and how that can open us to connect with that inner knowing? Sure. Um, first, I'll just acknowledge that many different wisdom traditions in history have acknowledged darkness as uh, teacher and portal to inner vision, to seeing with the heart or seeing in the dark. And so there are many practices that help us to access our intuition, our inner knowing. But if we're caught in, again, what I called earlier, shallow listening, caught in this mind of labeling and rationalization, we're not going to get there. And a voice that I find it fascinating, uh, as you name, that there's kind of a collective assumption that the authority is out there and that humans have been conditioned to turn our attention to externals. So to uh, look for, to look to be filled 
by activity out there, by success out there, by getting something out there, and by looking for knowledge out there. So we project authority outward instead of what meditation is ultimately a practice of reclaiming the authority of the heart, the authority of the integrated body, mind, heart. And so this takes courage. This takes courage because so many of us have been conditioned to project authority on externals or then on our spiritual path, we might project authority so fully on our guide or mentor or teacher that we're not willing to reciprocate by taking agency for our own practice and really waking up. And um, this conversation has a lot to do with receptivity, which we've been talking of, but when we're willing to really access this already existing uh, sort of superpower of receptivity, <laughs> which exists in each and every one of us, yeah. we deepen both our inner connection and interconnection our relational intelligence within and out. So in other words, that means we simply naturally, without effort really, deepen our capacity to be in touch with the messages of subtle body awareness, of our emotions, of our inner wisdom, that still, small, clear voice within, mm -hmm. and equally our interconnection, a sense of field consciousness, being a vessel for life to come through us and creativity to come through us and wisdom to come through us um, and compassion for the collective beyond our separate self. So I want to emphasize those two pathways, interconnection and interconnection as ours to develop as we reclaim the authority of the heart. This is a really important. Our world would be such a different place if more people were standing in the authority of the heart. Yeah, the shared heart not separate mm -hmm. the um experience of oneness is something that uh is certainly at the root of yoga philosophy and also something i think most people have had an experience of you know that in that interconnection that you were you know that you're describing that i think is um it's so important and most people just love it when they have that experience whether it might be being with a baby or being somewhere in nature you know the beauty of nature just feeling ourselves to be part of that of that larger presence so important you you were writing about uh strength and weakness and you quoted in the book you quoted uh, david hawkins who is a renowned psychiatrist physician and spiritual teacher and he wrote for our purposes, it is really only necessary to recognize that power is that which makes you strong, while force makes you weak. Love, compassion, and forgiveness, which may be mistakenly seen by some as submissive, are in fact profoundly empowering. Now read that last sentence again. Love, compassion, and forgiveness, which may be mistakenly seen by some as submissive, are in fact profoundly empowering. Would you say more about authentic power? Yes, uh, I love that quote by David Hawkins and just want to emphasize that it points to this imbalance within the dominant paradigm between yin and yang and a long held assumption that has certainly been passed down by patriarchy, colonialism, capitalism, a disconnect from the natural world, that yang is where it's at. Force is power. And what you are pointing to in that quote speaks of the innate power of receptivity uh, of the yin of listening. I can think of many indigenous traditions where the one who is the, the deepest listener is the person who uh, becomes the leader, yeah? And one's capacity to listen and follow guidance uh, is cherished. And so there's so much I could say about this, but I'll first say that I find it very important, vital, one of the most important things in today's world and for spiritual practitioners to look at our relationship with power personally and collectively, to acknowledge that 
humans have so much yet to learn about shared power rather than this legacy of power over Mm -hmm. um, and the tremendous harm it's caused and the way that it still exists within each of our psyches, even in subtle ways. And so practice invites us to remember the ground of being in shared presence. Again, this place of interconnection that is the backdrop of every moment. And from that place, there's a lot of different language we could use, but we palpably, we experience through direct experience, we remember we consciousness, really the place of non-separation where I'm not acting on behalf of my separate self. I'm not uh, caring on behalf of my separate self, but the whole. And it's a kind of um, consciousness that we can then bring into conflict, into difficult conversations, into healing, into community. It's really, really important, I find, for people who are on the spiritual path to investigate this relationship with power over and to explore what is power with, what is shared power. So Mm -hmm. even um, within my Sangha and the trainings I offer, we do a lot of practical explorations of shared power and the ways we can show up to life speaking from that and listening from that place because it's contagious. <laughs> Everyone gets a sense of, uh, oh, this feels different than when someone is placing someone above or below or just playing into conventional power dynamics. Does that make sense? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I know what you mean about uh, someone who's a really uh, being around someone who's a really good listener. It was always important to me as a physician. I, I'm trained, retired now, but I was trained as an internal medicine physician, so saw patients for many years and was always super important for me to listen you know, to people. So I felt like I was pretty good at it because I had stressed that, you know, for people. I mean, I invited my patients, if you ever feel like I'm not listening to you, please say something. Because if you if you tell me that, if you say, I don't feel like you're listening to me, I guarantee you it will stop me in my tracks. Um, and, I, and I never heard that, even though I invited it all the time. So I felt like I was pretty good at it. But then I was around someone, just a, someone that I had met recently, who listened with such a depth and it made me aware of all of the little ways just in in conversation in in a, a conversation around a dinner table we were having dinner with this person and um i was i was almost ashamed you know at how i caught myself wanting to interrupt and jump in and say what i wanted to say next it was quite remarkable uh to just be in the presence of a deep listener it was really cool yes and first just thank you for sharing that example of your time as a physician, I wish that every physician was trained in how to be a good and genuine listener. But I'll say that just a a fun practice people can take on, you know, deep listening is an expression of meditation. It's an awareness practice in itself. So you can be aware of when listening to another, um, when participating in a group, just noticing Am I fully present? Am I listening with every cell in my body, listening without any agenda, but listening itself? Or am I holding the agenda to try to fix or solve or change this person? Uh, Or am I holding the agenda to uh, try to impress them with my response? Am I holding an agenda of separate self that might look like being liked or seeking approval or just, I want to be heard. Hey, give me the mic now, (laughs) whatever it is. Humans are funny. And part of relational intelligence is bringing meditation to how we relate. So practicing the self-awareness. My second book was about relational mindfulness and there's all kinds of practices for this. But yes, it's fascinating as you shared to notice what we see in the mirror of conversation and the practice of listening, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, which kind of relates to this quote that I had pulled out. You write, we can learn to lead in the dark and be led by the dark. We can learn to lead in the dark and be led by the dark. Would you like to, I mean, it kind of is what you were just saying, but would you like yeah. to say it in a different way? Yes. Yeah. 
uh, I'll start by saying my feeling in today's world when we're navigating an age of global uncertainty unlike anything any of our ancestors faced is that we're all called to be leaders, um, each in our own way, whether that means taking more leadership in one's spiritual practice and life as a parent or in an international organization that one runs, but that because we need to dismantle and move beyond this old paradigm of power over to shared power and power with, which reflects who and what we actually are as human beings, there's so much um, room to relearn what leadership is. And a lot of people have been conditioned to think of a leader as someone who's already got it all figured out. If I'm a leader, I have to show up uh, stoic and not showing any of my beautiful, messy insides. I have to uh, have a script. Uh, I have to know where we're going ahead of time. I don't believe in any of that. Number one, it it um, affirms that story of leader as power over, leader on a pedestal, and leader as separate. Number two, it's just dishonest. When we're in touch with the authority of the heart, we're in touch with inner vision. And this requires that we rest in the dark more often, that we know the wisdom of not knowing where we're going, but listening and being an emergence as life unfolds every step of the way. I encourage leaders and in the trainings I offer to learn how to show up naked, mm -hmm. open, empty, unscripted, vulnerable, rather than trying to be uh, venerable, we might say, um, <laughs> trying to look a certain way, that right. that is genuine leadership. And that is leadership that makes impact and calls everyone you're with into um their potential as well yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's yeah. really that's really beautiful and inspiring you quote uh, thomas moore in dark nights of the soul where he wrote every human life is made up of light and dark the happy and the sad the vital and the deadening how you think about this rhythm of moods makes all the difference well, I wanted to just ask you, and that sounds, um, it has so many spiritual practices in it, right? I mean, being, um, you know, being the, the presence, you know, the, you know, the mindful awareness of just, you know, being with, you know, what's going on, the, the non-attachment to outcomes. just wanted to ask how that's been helpful to you in your own journey. Yeah, I love the particular quotes that you're pulling out. So, uh, a thank you to Thomas More for this one. And for me, when you were speaking, I thought of uh, Rumi's poem, The Guest House, mm -hmm. and just this notion of it doesn't matter who you are, or what walk of life, every human can relate to just each day, even in our first waking state in the morning, um, noticing that we have so many different aspects of ourself. Uh, that there are so many different uh, emotions and human experiences and internal states and uh, that move through. And part of practice is about learning to befriend and live in harmonious, genuinely compassionate, accepting relationship with all of those parts, no part left out. Because as we do that internally, we also uh, bring that externally more into our world. Um, and then equally, the path is about going beyond identification with separate self and these parts at all. But it's both, both befriending every part and knowing who we are uh, beyond that. And I think what I would just emphasize is that it's joyful practice. It's joyful practice to meet with um, compassion, uh, welcome, curiosity, even when a part of us is cringing or saying, oh, this feels like a really extreme emotion that I have to just escape. Uh, it fortifies us and puts us in touch with our innate resilience. And again, with who we really are, you know, love has no bounds. It doesn't have a, a size. It doesn't like this and not that it loves love loves the entire spectrum uh, of light and dark. And there's a great quote in the book by Barbara Taylor Brown, uh, that's 
darkness is not dark to God. The night is as bright as the day. So it's remembering that Beautiful. within ourselves. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's pretty simple and yet complex and takes <laughs> some practice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was reflecting on, you know, how um, fear holds us back, you know, so much from these experiences, it, being afraid that we are, that our lives are going to have the portion of the, you know, the, the dark, the sad, the deadening, you know, just pulling from the quote, um, which reminds me of, of another of my favorite quotes, which this one's from the Bhagavad Gita, it's cha chapter two, verse 40, even a little bit of this practice removes great fear. And I think that's, to me, that's been my experience is the more that you don't bypass, the more that you face these, you know, these experiences, these sides of ourselves, and can accept them, um, even just a little bit of that makes you realize that really there's nothing to fear. You know, there's, there's no need for fear, that we can just be there for everything. Yes, I love that you brought that in. And I know that in my own uh, life, I, I feel that I've become a truly courageous person because I've had so much fear to navigate. And it's it, once upon a time back in the day, it was about like, oh, gosh, well, there's fear and I'm judging the fear. Uh, that's not good spiritual person. So I have two choices. I can either just identify with the fear and be stuck or I can sort of push myself off the end of the diving board. And through awareness, I found that neither of those things work and neither of those things are, grow me. But to hold hands with the one who is afraid while simultaneously taking the next step forward in courage. That works. And that's something we can do every day of our lives that we're meeting fear. And then as you said, it just takes a, a little bit till we realize, oh, maybe fear <laughs> is only, uh, what's the acronym, false evidence appearing real? Ah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I enjoy that as part of the book at the end of each chapter, you uh, include experiential exercises. And I always like to give listeners just a little something to take away without them needing to, you know, to buy the book. Um, would you lead us through the experiential practice of three sacred breaths? And uh, it's on page 119 if you want to get it there. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd like to, before guiding this, just, just remind people that our breath is an ally that's always with us. And the choice of slowing down is a choice we can always make, though there are many stories in the head that say, but I can't slow down now. But every time we take a sacred pause, we give ourselves permission to sort of come down off of or to step out of, we might say, the river of thought and conditioning if we're caught in that, or simply to rest even more deeply in the, the ground of being. So let's just, uh, people are in a place where you can close your eyes or soften your gaze, maybe to allow that. And if you're not, that's fine. And just take a moment to notice how it feels to rest in darkened stillness. Maybe being aware that when we soften the gaze, some of our other senses awaken. And let's just give ourselves permission to take in three of the deepest and slowest breaths we've taken today. Simply inviting your breath to relax you. Just riding your breath all the way to the top and all the way back down again. And when you're complete, just allowing your breath to return to its natural rhythm. 
not becoming the active breather, but allowing your breath to breathe you. And just noticing, so simple, but just noticing the impact of slowing down and taking in three sacred breaths, something we can do any time. and something we can do throughout our day. Thank you. Mm. Yeah. That's really lovely, very simple. And, and as you say, breath is so wonderful because it is always with us. So, yes. well, unbelievably, this time has flown by. We're at the end of our time together. What words of encouragement or inspiration would you like to leave with our listeners? You know, I'd like to just invite people um, to remember that just by being willing to question our associations and judgments about darkness, just by being willing to bring some curiosity to these associations, and by being willing to spend a little bit more time befriending the night or meeting what we consider dark with respect and wonder instead of fear. Uh, the impact on my own life has been uh, a level of freedom that I didn't once know I would have and a level of uh, continuing integration and wholeness. And just to consider that if we look together at all the different ways that this divide between light and dark has impacted our world and impacts us spiritually. I know I judge parts of myself for years through that divide. Um, it's not needed anymore. <laughs> mm. There's so much uh, more willingness and support in terms of what's happening in our world to uh, take another path. So just offering the encouragement to be open and curious where you notice fear. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. You've been listening to the Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the show. My guest today has been Deborah Eden Tall. Eden teaches the work that reconnects, which was created by Joanna Macy. Her website is DebraEdenTull.com, where you can find out more about her programs and her books. We will also have that link on our website, TheYogaHour.com. Thank you so much, Eden, for joining me today on the show. Thank you so much, Laurel. I really enjoyed your presence and questions and just want to appreciate you for having me on today. Thank you to everyone who's listening. For listeners, um, you can join us for the many online programs offered by the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, which is a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. There's daily online meditation in the mornings at 6.30 a.m., in the afternoons at 4 p.m., and on Monday evenings at 7.30. All those times are Pacific time. Also, there's a Sunday satsang. Satsang is a word that means a gathering of truth seekers, and that occurs at 10 a.m. Pacific each week. There will also be a, a New Year's Kriya Yoga retreat that runs from December 29th to January 1st, which is offered both on-site at CSC headquarters in San Jose and also online globally. Join us next time on the Yoga Hour when I, my guest will be John Bauer. John is the author and spiritual counselor. He has expertise in healing grief and trauma. We will be discussing how we can find healing, transformation, and spiritual growth through compassionate caregiving. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. As I just mentioned, the headquarters is in San Jose, but uh, programs are available online. Remember to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, and Christine Sote. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, 
You carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet.